Now, a lot of us probably have special years that stick out in our minds. They're significant for some reason. Like the year that we were born, or when we gave our life to Jesus, or when we got married, or had kids, or graduated. Things like that. Well, a significant year for every member of First Baptist Church of Oxford, whether you know it or not, is the year 1879. 1879, that's the year that a small group of individuals founded our church. That's 143 years that we are celebrating. And I feel like I should really put that in perspective for all of us, how long 143 years is. In 1879, only 14 years had passed since the conclusion of the American Civil War, and our country was still more than 30 years away from World War I. Uh, More than that, 1879 was the year that milk was just starting to be sold in glass bottles. It's the year that Thomas Edison's incandescent light bulb was successfully completed. In 1879, future Nobel Prize winner Albert Einstein was born. So was future founder of Alcoholics Anonymous, Bob Smith. Maybe decades before either one of those men made their mark on the world. See, 1879, that was a long time ago. It was so long ago that the chocolate chip cookie wouldn't be invented for almost 60 more years. (laughs) It was a dark time, 1879. (laughs) Remember, the radio hadn't been invented, which means television certainly hadn't been. Wilbur and Orville Wright hadn't famously taken flight yet. And sliced bread was decades away from being sold in stores. Our church is literally older than sliced bread. (laughs) You always remember that, okay? Today we celebrate 143 years that God has allowed this church to be in the community. And this isn't about patting ourselves on the back. This is about praising God for his goodness. You see, a lot of things have changed over the years in our country, in our community, and right here, right here at First Baptist Church of Oxford. But as Pastor Brandon highlighted at last week's tree trail, even though things change over time, our God does not. The same God who blessed the founding of FBCO has sustained this church over the years. And my prayer for this church is that if the Lord doesn't return for the next 143 years, that we, well, not us, but the church would still be found here. And as I've shared with you all on more than one occasion, my my prayer is that this would only be true, that this church would remain if this continues to be a gospel-going, God-fearing, spirit-filled church. Part of my prayer is that if we fail to be that church, that a more faithful church would come and take our place. Because, you see, our community doesn't simply need a bunch of churches. Our community needs churches that will point them to Jesus Christ. That means that we can't be inwardly focused, believers. We have to focus on those outside these walls and on sharing the gospel with them. Now, there are a lot of things necessary for us to be a spiritually healthy church, but there is one that I want to focus on most today, and that is the unity of the body of believers. So to do that, if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, use one of those Bibles under the seats in front of you. If you'd like to use one of those, you can turn to page 923. Page 923. 
1 Corinthians chapter 1. Now, this, this book in the Bible, it's a, it's a letter written by Paul to the church in the city of Corinth. Now, the city of Corinth was, uh, was a big deal in the Roman Empire, major trade city. And it was also a really messed up place. It was a cesspool of sin. And it was renowned for that. People knew that about the city of Corinth. But in the midst of it stood the Corinthian church. And this was a special church, the Apostle Paul. You see, he founded it during one of his missionary journeys. Spent a lot of time there, too. Shared the gospel with a lot of people. He taught the believers. And eventually, Paul left to continue his journey. Not long afterwards, he learned that the church was having some problems. And this, this is one of his letters to them. So he began the letter this way. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, we read this. It says, Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, I have a feeling that a lot of us, we probably read pretty quickly past introductions like these that we find in certain books in Scripture. Or maybe that's just me, because I will admit that I've done that many times. Read these three verses and you keep going. But I want us to slow down and stop right here because I want us to see something really special about who we are in Jesus Christ. Uh, let me show you what I mean by starting with Paul. Paul was an apostle of Jesus Christ. And that means that after seeing the resurrected Savior, Jesus, Paul was specifically sent by Jesus to take the message of the gospel to a lost and hurting world. And the authority of Paul's ministry was confirmed by the miraculous works that he did in the power of God's Holy Spirit. You see, being an apostle, that... That was a special thing. And Paul knew that. He knew that was special. Paul also never lost sight of the fact that he didn't deserve that because he never lost sight of who he was before he was in Christ. Before Paul was a follower of Jesus, Paul was a persecutor of Christians. He was a legalistic Pharisee. He was an enemy of God. Paul never forgot that. In fact, it caused him to write later on that he considered himself the least of all the apostles. He considered himself someone who didn't even deserve to be called an apostle. But by God's grace, that's exactly what he was, an apostle of Jesus Christ. So despite all of his faults, Paul never forgot who he was in Christ, and he strived to live up to that calling by faithfully following his Savior. And then Paul reminds the Corinthians of who they are. In Jesus Christ. They are those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be his holy people. Now, I like that phrase, holy people, because it is also properly translated as saints. Saints. Biblically, all followers of Jesus Christ are declared saints in God's sight. That's a big deal, isn't it? Through faith in Jesus, we're declared righteous, holy, set apart to God. We're not supposed to live the way that the world does. That's our position in Jesus Christ. Our position is that of saints. Of course, practically, we should live up to that.
calling by living what we would call a saintly life. In other words, we need to grow more like Christ. We need to live in righteousness. That's the process of our sanctification. Now, I bring this up because the Corinthians probably would have realized they didn't deserve the title of saints. After all, many of them no doubt came from wicked backgrounds. The city of Corinth was so wicked that in that day, there was this word that they had. It was a verb. It was to Corinthianize. All right? And to Corinthianize, it was a widespread verb that described someone living in gross immorality. It was so well known that Corinthians, that's how they lived. They were some messed up sinful people. But by God's grace, having put their faith in Jesus, these formerly depraved Corinthians had been rescued from sin. Forgiven by God, they are saints, Paul said. Sadly, as the letter goes on, you'll find that they weren't living saintly lives, that's for sure. And Paul was going to challenge them to live up to that calling. First, they needed to remember who they were in Jesus Christ. And First Baptist Church, I want all of us to remember who we are in Christ Jesus this morning. If you are, in fact, in Him. In other words, if Jesus Christ is your Savior, the Lord of your life, then recognize that despite who you once were, and the things that you once did, and the life of sin you were once entrenched in, despite all these things, the Bible says, if Jesus is your Savior, that you are now a child of God. That you are a citizen of heaven, a sheep of his flock. You are a saint in God's sight. And church, we need to strive to live up to these things, to live according to this calling. Don't forget who you are in Jesus Christ. And every time you remember these things, determine in your heart, to live a life worthy of this calling that we have. The Corinthian church needed to do that too. Then Paul said this in verse 4. He said, I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge. God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. All right, after reminding them who they are in Christ, now Paul tells them about what they have in Jesus Christ. And listen to the things that they've received. He says they're recipients of God's grace. Now, grace is one of those words we say a lot in church, isn't it? I'm pretty sure I probably said it five times before I started preaching. It's just a big word we use in church, used a lot. Uh, but when Paul talks about grace, he's not referring to that prayer that we say before our meals. He's not referring to someone's poise and finesse. That person's really graceful. That's not what Paul is saying. Now, this grace that Paul talks about, he's talking about undeserved favor or an unearned gift. That's why we say that salvation is a part of God's grace. God freely gives salvation despite the fact that we don't deserve it. We can't do anything to earn it. That's all about God's grace. But Paul points out that God's grace doesn't end there. God's grace doesn't end when we receive salvation. No, after saving us, God showers us with His grace, sends His Holy Spirit to live within us. He gives us spiritual gifts to serve Him, and He gives us, the Bible says, everything we need 
to live a righteous life. But more than that, Paul says they've been enriched in Jesus Christ with all kinds of speech and knowledge. In other words, they had everything they needed to share spiritual truth with others. Usually we think as Christians that if we don't have a seminary degree or a decades-long background in church, then we can't be used to share the gospel. But believer, you need to understand God will supply you with all that you need to share him with others. And it will be to your great benefit to know him more by reading scripture, but understand that in God's great grace, he will give us words to speak the truth about him to other people if only we will be faithful to do that. More than that, the believers in Corinth, they had an abundance of spiritual gifts in their midst, but the sweetest thing they had received is their fellowship with Jesus Christ. I mean, how incredible is it that in the moment of our salvation, we go from sinners separated from God, and then we're saved and we become saints in fellowship with the Savior. That, that's grace, that fellowship. First Baptist Church, don't lose sight of God's grace to you and all the things that he has given you in Christ Jesus. He has gifted you, too, with the necessary knowledge and speech to share spiritual truth with others. I love when church members tell me how they've been sharing the gospel with other people, some of them for the very first time, and how they've captured the joy of it. They realize, well, it's not as hard as they used to think that it was. That's because they realize that God is guiding them. The question is, church, are all of us doing this? Are we all sharing the gospel with other people? More than that, God has gifted you, church, with all kinds of spiritual gifts. We have members in this church with the spiritual gift of faith, some with wisdom, serving, teaching, others with the gift of giving, just to name a few. As I wrote those down this week, many members came to my mind for each of those gifts. There are a lot of spiritual gifts here in this church. The question is, are we all using our gifts to serve God by serving one another? And another thing that you have from Jesus Christ is fellowship with him. And as a result, you have fellowship with one another. This is what I want you to understand this morning, First Baptist Church. It is a part of God's great grace that great unity and fellowship exists here in this church. I want you to remember that. Some longtime members that we have at this church have shared with me over the years the history of First Baptist Church of Oxford, including how a number of years ago there was a church split here. And when the church split happened, a large number of individuals and even leaders in the church decided to leave. And when they did that, they decided that they were going to spread rumors in the church and then in the community about First Baptist Church of Oxford. They said some really nasty things, things I wouldn't say from the pulpit. And a lot of damage was done when that happened. Now, things like that usually cause the church to fall apart. But in his grace, God brought a pastor here who navigated the people into a time of peace. God's spirit moved in the hearts of those who remained to continue on together. They trusted God wasn't done working here. And over the years, God sustained them. There were a lot of hard years that the church faced. But God brought them healing, and he brought a renewed unity that has continued on ever since. Don't lose sight of that unity that God has brought here. In fact, that unity was present before I ever came. And let me just say this 
As someone who is blessed to be one of your pastors, one of the greatest things that brings me joy is when I talk to visitors and they talk about that unity. They say, you know, this was one of the friendliest churches I've been in. It was one of the sweetest churches. They felt like a family. Everybody cares for one another. I can't tell you how many times members will share with others, invite them to church, bring them here, or people will walk off the street and come, and then that's what those visitors walk away, and they'll say that to me. They'll say, this was a friendly church. And church, that's a God thing, this unity that we have. In fact, an unbeliever at a recent event even said to me, he said, you know, this is incredible. Everyone here knows each other and cares about each other. That's a special thing, church, when even unbelievers take notice of this. Now, don't get me wrong. We're still an imperfect church. We're always going to be. But I'm overjoyed that we are willing to walk together as imperfect people following Jesus Christ. The unity and fellowship of this church is what caused me and my wife to uproot ourselves from Virginia and move here years ago. It's what's led a number of you to join the church as well. And again, all of this is a God thing. By God's great grace, that unity has been maintained for many years. We have the sweet fellowship from him. And I want to make sure we never forget the things that we have in Jesus Christ so that we would never stop being thankful for these blessings. Because you see, not every church has this fellowship. It's easy to damage unity, to lose it. And if it isn't regained, churches, they become ineffective, or they split, or they fall apart. And you know what? The church in Corinth, they were starting to realize that. The believers there, they still had fellowship with Jesus, because as believers, we're never going to lose our relationship with them. But they weren't living in fellowship with each other. Let me show you what I mean. Look at verse 10. Paul said, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Well, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius. So no one can say that you were baptized in my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. See, the church in Corinth was becoming divided, and there is nothing more heartbreaking and foolish than when God's people spend their time accusing each other and fighting each other and holding on to grudges and hurts rather than reconciling with each other. It reminds me of a an old fable, there's an old fable about a, a herd of mules. I think that's the right word, a herd. So a herd of mules, a whole bunch of them. And night after night, this group of mules was being attacked by a pack of wolves. And whenever the wolves came around, the mules did what mules do. They started kicking like crazy. 
But they could never get any of the wolves. They were too quick, too agile. Instead, the mules were just kicking and hurting one another. Well, after this had gone on for a while, one of the old mules, he wisened up. He called the rest of them together, hatched a plan. So the next night when the wolves came, all the mules circled up with their heads in the center and they kicked outward so that they didn't hurt each other and they successfully beat the enemy back that day. You know, sadly, instead of putting our heads together and being like-minded in our pursuit of Christ, many Christians, when they're presented with hurts and struggles in churches, they start taking aim at one another instead of coming together the way that God's people are supposed to. That was what was going on in Corinth. Over time, they became divided. They started fighting about their preferences of church leaders. So some claimed that they were followers of Paul, and others that they were followers of the great teacher, Apollos. Then some people came in and said, well, I follow Cephas. That's the apostle Peter. And then the really pious ones would swoop in and say, well, I follow Jesus Christ. Which, by the way, is the right answer. The fact that Paul includes them shows that they didn't have the right attitude about it. And I bring this up, I wanted us to look at this group of believers in Scripture for a very specific reason. You see, based on the timelines of Paul's ministry, most scholars agree that it had been five years or fewer since Paul had last been there leading that church. You see, I have a feeling that there was once great unity in the church in Corinth. Oh, when they were led by the Apostle Paul, when he was preaching the gospel, and when that teaching was new and it was exciting, when the believers were eager to gather together and pursue Jesus Christ. But then something changed. A few years passed, and the unity was just was gone. So that should lead all of us to ask, what happened there? Well, as Paul's letter goes on, he talks about the fact that there is jealousy in the church. There is arrogance. They're puffed up with pride. See, they started to become proud. They put the focus on themselves. Even boasting about their leaders was rooted in themselves, their own supposed greatness. And Paul wanted them to understand it's not about you. It's about unity. And if you ever notice that when life becomes all about you, you start to care a whole lot less about other people. You start holding on to personal offenses more. Your relationships start to hurt. You lose your joy. Have you ever noticed that? Well, usually by the time a church notices that, the damage has been done. They look around, and the disunity there has caused so much hurt, so much division. They've lost their love for one another. They lost their testimony in the community. The question is, what's the solution? Paul says they need to be perfectly united in mind and thought together. What's he mean by that? It means that instead of focusing on their leadership preference, instead of focusing on themselves, instead of focusing on personal hurts, they were supposed to focus on Jesus Christ. When a church is united in their desire to know Jesus and then to make him known to others, they won't so easily be torn apart. Instead, they'll be quick to forgive each other when they offend one another because they remember Jesus' forgiveness towards them. They'll stand on the same core doctrines without letting minor differences separate them. They don't worry about who's loyal to what leader because they're all loyal to Jesus Christ. And I bring all of this up because while I praise God for the unity in this church, the unity that has been here for many years, we need to understand that disunity can come very quickly. It took less than five years for it to spread 
in the church in Corinth. And if we are not constantly in pursuit of Jesus Christ here, disunity will come to this church too. So what do we need to do to prevent this First Baptist Church? Here's a few things for you. First, we need to remember who we are in Jesus Christ. We are imperfect sinners saved by grace. That means that we will all make mistakes and hurt each other at times. We'll sin against one another. We need to be quick to repent to one another, to forgive each other, and to enter back into fellowship when that happens. Second, we need to remember what we have in Jesus Christ. We have everything that we need to serve him, to serve one another, and to share the gospel. And as long as we are doing these things, then we'll have a love that focuses on each other and on those outside these walls, instead of focusing on ourselves. And third, we need to make sure that all of our loyalty is found in Jesus Christ, not in any pastor or teacher or deacon or any personality or person. All of our loyalty needs to be found in Jesus Christ alone, church. If we want this church to remain in the community, to grow spiritually, to be God-pleasing, then we need to realize not about you or me or any of us. It's about Jesus. Unity will only be maintained so long as we remain all about Christ. So if we want to stay united together, church, remember this very simple truth moving forward. It's not about us, but it is all about Jesus. And I understand that that will sound rather simple to all of our ears. But a lot of churches have lost sight of this. And then disunity comes. And then those churches fall apart and fade away. So let's strive here at First Baptist Church of Oxford to grow in our relationship with Jesus Christ alongside each other. By coming together to worship the Lord, but also by being with one another in Sunday school and small groups, fellowshipping all throughout the week. Let's strive to share Jesus with others in our community. And believers, trust me, when you do that, God will give you word to speak. He'll help you as you share the gospel with others. And I promise you will find in doing that one of the greatest joys you have ever had in life. And let's strive to remember that it is all about Jesus and all of our loyalty should be found in him. First Baptist Church of Oxford, I look forward to the next 143 years. Won't be here for all of it, I'm sure, but I look forward to it. Let's keep our eyes focused on Christ till he returns or calls us home. If you're here and Jesus Christ is not your Savior, I want you to understand why we believe it's so important to be all about Jesus. I want you to understand why Christians are crazy about Jesus, why we love him so much, why we say all of our loyalty, our whole lives should be about him. Uh, but to understand, you need to hear some bad news first. So you need to understand the Bible says that there's bad news. The bad news is that, well, we've, we've blown it, you and me. We've really messed up in our lives. We've done bad things, right? We've sinned. That's what we do when we lie and cheat and steal, and lust, take God's name in vain, disobey our parents, on and on that list goes. Well, the reason this is bad news is because the Bible says our sin is separating us from God. And not only is it separating us from Him right now, but when this life ends, we're going to be separated forever from God in a place called hell if our sin isn't taken care of. And the bad news gets a little bit worse 
because we can't take care of our sin. No amount of going to church, celebrating church anniversaries, no amount of good works, none of these things can save us. The good news is that Jesus Christ wants to save us. The Bible says Jesus Christ came to this earth, took on a human body, and lived a perfect life, the thing that we can't do. And at the end of that life, when Jesus died on the cross, what he was doing was taking our place, taking all the punishment, the pain, the wrath that our sin deserves. After Jesus died on the cross, he was buried. But three days later, he powerfully rose from the dead, proving that he's no mere man. He wasn't simply some moral teacher the way the world tries to claim. No, no, no. He's the Son of God. He's the only one who can rescue us from sin and hell. And the Bible says that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The moment that you give your life to Jesus Christ, Jesus will forgive you of all your sins. And he will forget all of your sins. In that moment, Jesus will come and live within you and allow you to live and love in a way you have never lived and loved before. In the moment you give your life to Jesus, you become a part of the family of God. And in that moment that you give him your life, Jesus will give you eternal life. The guarantee that you'll be with him in heaven forever when this life ends. If you have never done that, please understand that you can do that before you leave today. Amen. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Friend, if that's where you're at today, if you don't know that Jesus is your Savior, you don't know what's going to happen to you when this life ends, you don't know what your eternity is going to look like, friend, don't go through life that way. Jesus has been waiting your whole life to save you. The question is, will you give your life to him? I want you to know that you can do that in a minute during our final song. You can come down and talk to me about these things. Bring your questions or we can pray together. But if you're ready right now to give your life to Jesus Christ, I don't want you to have to wait another moment. If you are ready, you can go to Jesus in prayer. I'll even give you a simple prayer you can pray. You can follow along with me. You can say these words out loud, or you can say them in your heart, and he'll hear you. You can say, Dear Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner, but I know that you died on the cross for me. And I believe that you rose from the dead. Jesus, today I'm asking you to forgive me. I'm asking you to be my Savior. Jesus, today I'm giving you my life because I know you can do more with it than I can. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that if there's anybody here this morning who hasn't made that decision yet, that they would before they leave. That they wouldn't leave here relying on their good works to get them to heaven, hoping that maybe they'll make it at the end of this life. Instead, I pray that they would give their life to Jesus Christ. For those of us who have done that, Father, I pray that we would be found faithfully living for you. Which means that we would be walking in close fellowship with you. Reading your word, going to you in prayer, gathering together with the body of believers. And every time we come to this place, Father, I pray that great unity would be found here. And that can only happen so long as you are here in our midst. Because we are a bunch of imperfect people. So, Father, in those moments where we hurt each other, where we make mistakes, where we sin, where we say or do things we shouldn't say or do, help us to be quick to ask one another for forgiveness, to give one another forgiveness, 
to be reconciled to each other. I pray that you would maintain the unity here, Father, so that you'd be honored and glorified here. So that this would be a church that pursues you and tells other people about you. Father, 143 years, that's a blessing we we don't deserve. I pray we wouldn't lose sight of that so that we'd always be found praising you. And as we close and praise you with one more song, I pray that it would be a sweet sound to your ears. Father, we love you. But for 143 years, you've been proving to this church that you love us more. I thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.